Hello, Frank McDade here, your host for What Not Fun, a podcast on work and play. Each episode, we dig deep into the play history of our guests and uncover the parallels between how they played as a child and how they engage as an adult. Today's guest is... All right, hey, um, my name's Jesse Wilcox, and I am a junior architect. I enjoyed talking to Jesse due to her love of play. Growing up, she would do everything from role play to engineer her own toys out of found objects. Without further ado, let's get started with our interview. Okay, so um, we want to start out just getting to know you a bit better. Um, we want to start by talking to little Jesse and starting to understand, <laughs> you know, what what toys did little Jesse love to play with and what activities that you like to do as a child. <laughs> Great. Well, little Jesse is always here, so um, she is happy to talk to you. Um, as far back as I can remember, I think my biggest interest in play, or let's say the interests that were that continued to be important to me, were pretend games and creation or building games. I think one of my oldest memories of play um, was when I was in kindergarten, and I was a young kindergartner, so I probably couldn't have been more than, I don't know, five years old. And I remember this memory I think mostly because my kindergarten teacher took a picture of me. And so I was probably reminded of it quite often in my life. But it was a time when I decided to play alone uh, during free time. And I took all the big blocks in all of the class, in the whole classroom, and I created an airplane. Uh, and I sat on top of it. And I think my teacher thought it was so cute. And I was so proud that she thought something I built was so important. Um, I think it stuck with me uh, quite quite um for quite a long time uh and to this day i still remember that and looking at the picture of me i was so small <laughs> so i can't remember i can't believe that i remember it um so it must have been quite important to me and i think that that was the beginning if not uh I, it was probably the beginning of a lot of creation and building games that I continued to play um, throughout my life, both alone and with my uh, friends and especially my sister and my cousin, who were probably my closest playmates. Um, when I think about that as a, as a sort of focused topic, um, and I go through the rest of my young life in that way, I would definitely draw from experiences or even television shows or stories from my parents and create uh, or even I guess stories that I was told books as well um, I would create uh, like objects engineered sort of toys myself out of found objects and uh, create things that I had seen or understood through those stories that I was told or were wa was watching um, and those are probably the most significant things I remember because they really, they were really individual, but they related completely with the world around me and the stories I was being told. So there was like constraints, but there was a lot of invention in them. Um, and sort of related to that, I think as well, would be pretend. So I think that also has a lot to do with creation where maybe you're not building the objects necessarily. Um, but you are building stories together. Uh, and when I think about the games I played as a kid, those were almost, I think they were probably the biggest part of my earliest childhood. 
we would play school, we would play doctor, <laughs> not in the way you're thinking. Uh, we would play um, uh, store. We would kind of make believe we were grownups, really, I guess. And I think that's if you got someone on the line who was in child development, I'm sure they would probably tell you that's quite normal. Um, it's very normal. It always... Some of the top selling <laughs> toys in role play are all about like future occupations. So playing doctor as a young child is definitely not a weird thing. Um, <laughs> as, as an adult, if you want to play doctor, you know, that means something completely different. Exactly. Equally fun, not as a child. However, um, I definitely did uh, a lot of role playing games. And I remember when I think of, and I know this is coming later, I guess, but I really think about that to this day as like what role playing meant to me, um, because I think what it allowed me and I'm sure all other little children to do was to um, kind of take on roles that I may not already know about and therefore allow myself to do expansive thinking um, instead of focused thinking. It allows you to kind of check your own biases if you can do that when you're five years old, but I think it really does. That's kind of what we're learning how to do is to, you know, you can play the villain, even if you never want to be the villain and you can um, be a teacher, even if you prefer to be a student. And it really helps you, helps you to see like all these different ways of thinking. You have to put yourself into that play acting um, place. Um, and that was always really special to me. Um, it also allowed me to hang out with other friends in the neighborhood and we would create narratives together. Uh, I think I was lucky enough to grow up in a generation that still let you like run around barefoot through the streets in the summer and, you know, ride your bike around and meet random strangers. <laughs> and uh, we would always get together and um, put together, you know, little plays or narratives um, playing pretend um, and role playing. Uh, Another thing I did when I was little, I played a lot. I really did. I was starting to think about this when you asked me to join you, and I was just thinking, I played so much. <laughs> <laughs> Not only, but I really, I mean, all we all did, right? We all did, but I'm so grateful for this. I was really thinking, like, not only did I play role-playing and pretend, but my mother got it, me really into art. I loved drawing and painting my whole life, like, ever since I was a baby. We also, sports were also a really big thing in my uh, family. So my, both of my parents were involved in city softball leagues from the time, well, actually from their teenagehood until their 50s. So my whole life, I grew up going to the softball complex. I was on my own softball teams. I played on basketball teams. I was a competitive swimmer. Um, so sport play was always a really big thing. We would play pickup games in the neighborhood. We would play um kickball, soccer, basketball, we would make up games, we'd make up sports. Uh, so kind of like the pretend creation and sports together, we would just like chase each other around and shoot the hose at each other. Um, and that was really important. And we also, we didn't have a lot of money, but we were huge rummage sailors. So we had, I don't think you could believe how many board games we had and puzzles an unbelievable amount, <laughs> um, just so many. Um, and I think my favorites were often the kind of logic ones where you had to puzzle things out. I really liked Clue, Guess Who, Battleship, Lie Detector. Do you remember Lie Detector? I don't. As soon as you said that, my ears perked up. I'm like, oh, is that like oh a real God. lie detector? 
It was like this little plastic controller and every card was a character and you had to figure out who was lying and like who did the crime or something like that. And each, it was like so analog for its time. Like each card was like a punch card. It was essentially like a punch card computer. You'd stick it in the little plastic machine and you'd place a little pen through it. And by virtue of where the holes were in the punch card, um, the pen would go through ah. and it would either be like one or zero, right? Like, yes or no, did this person lie? You'd have to like solve the mystery. That was Ooh, so much fun. It <laughs> does sound like fun. I'm like, there should be an adult version of that game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think adults could definitely play it now. I haven't played it in so long, but uh, I'm definitely going to Google that when we're done here. I bet it's all like, I bet it's all like video game now. Yeah, Nobody probably. Entranced by this punch card anymore. yeah the punch card to me is classic though like even if you have to get the old game it's nice to have like that material in your hands um you know what i mean because it's so much different than playing with a joystick or with or on your phone it's just not the same oh, experience. absolutely yeah i mean same with any game now board games anything i even found out um recently this is this is how unsavvy i am about technology that you can't buy software anymore. Everything's an app you download from the computer. And I thought it was just like five years ago that you still bought DVDs and CD-ROMs. <laughs> I went to go do that for my nephew. I was like, I was really into Nancy Drew games when I was a kid, like uh, CD-ROM games. They don't sell CD-ROMs anymore. Frank. Yeah. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> uh, I, I had that realization, I think, whenever I got a new iMac a few years ago where I needed software for it. And basically it was like, go to the app store. And I'm like, I don't need an app. I want like software. And then meanwhile, I'm right. like, Oh, it's the same thing now. It just, you know, it, the app store shows you different things based off the size of your device that you're on. And it's just crazy to think about. Yeah. Like CDs are gone. And then like, um, thinking back from CD-ROMs to like, actually, this is another childhood story, I guess is like, we used to have floppy disks and like the five and a half inch and the three inch. And like, I'm trying to think of the first time I had a computer because we also played a lot of computer games. And I think I was like six years old when we first got our computer. Um, I remember it was Christmas, uh, Christmas morning, me and my sister, I was about six, so she must've been about nine years old. And we unwrapped a gift from quote unquote Santa and it was a mouse pad and two little like mice, plastic mice with felt on them. And of course, like we had no idea what a mouse pad was. And we thought it was like, oh my God, what a mysterious thing. Like mom and dad, what kind of, you know, what kind of clue is this? And we honestly couldn't figure it out. We had no idea what a mouse pad was. And um, I'm sure, actually, now that I think of it, kids today probably don't know what a mouse pad is either. But we, they brought us to what had been the sewing room and is now and probably forever will be the computer room of my parents' house. And it was like this giant box iNet computer with Windows 3.1. And from that day on, like, of course, my life was completely changed. <laughs> but... Um, computer games became a huge thing in my life, a huge thing. And to this day, I don't think there's anything better than scroll screen animation. It's the best classic. 
game you can play. Yeah, I remember a game um, from when I was a kid. We had a Packard Bell computer. There was this game called like Word Munchers or something like that. And oh, yeah. the whole thing you had to do was like collect these words. And if you didn't do it, there was like this gooey stuff that would like come after you. And it was just like the cheesiest game ever. But I would kill something today in order to play it again. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it was a, a, a Mac, M-E-C-C game. I don't M-E-C-C. know. <laughs> because they also had number munchers. We played them in school. They let us play them in school. So we got to know little Jessie, and it seems like there was a lot of play in her life. Now we start to paint the parallels from when she was a child to being an adult. The stereotype for the architect, right, is that there were a lot of building games as a child. And for sure, I did that. As I mentioned, it wasn't just building the narrative, but also um, building like these objects, these like environments, forts or cars or airplanes. At the same time, I also played with Legos and Lincoln Logs and Connects and all these different building unit module games. Um, or even just like building cards, uh, stacking cards. I love to do that too. Um, but as stereotypical as those are to the architect's profession, and I think they're immediately relevant, obviously, I would say that it's almost more the abstract aspects of those things I was involved in that probably have influenced what I do today more than anything else. So when I spoke about, um, for instance, building these objects, it wasn't so much the object, I think, as that they were found objects and I was creating um, something new from, excuse me, I was creating something uh, new through the relationship to the world I was seeing. So architecture, I would say, isn't just about building, but it's about relationships, right? It's the relationships of space to space, of space to people, of people to people, of people to money, of money back to space. And I think it's a really important um, fundamental for an architect, or whether in their work or their, or their play, to be able to very quickly create relationships among what other people might see as very disparate arrangements of, of things. And when I look back at the play I did as a kid, that was a lot of the things I found fulfillment with. And also a lot of the things that I was given praise for when I did them. Um, so perhaps it actually influenced those steps I took to become an architect. Um, I think anyone who has done any kind of design education or design thinking education is probably familiar with what I'm saying because of this. I would say another aspect to that design thinking is what I touched on with the pretend um, with the role playing, which is that you have to put yourself in other people's shoes. You really have to think expansively. You can't just think in a focused way. I think a lot of the, the sort of like default work experiences people have is about making profit. And while that's a big part of development and, and environmental development and, and architecture as it, as it exists in the world, you know, in the real world, um, we don't, it, it's not, it's not, it's, it's actually in spite of that or alongside of that. You really have to put yourself into multiple narratives and ask yourself, what are the goals of multiple different parties? And while I guess other professions have to do that as well, I would say that play and an ability, like a, a practice ability to put yourself into other roles is a huge part of my life and continues to be a huge part of my life. Um, and I would say, like, <laughs> uh, for instance, the jobs I've had where I really didn't get along with my boss very well, 
it was because they had gotten so far away from that expansive thinking, like, what are all the different possibilities? Can we find a way around this obstacle? They had gotten so into, like, they had, they had so many known constraints to them that they start to think in such a focused way. They forget the kind of what play and intuition can do when you let yourself go into a different role. Um, so I would say that's definitely a big part of my life right now and also how I try to define the kind of boss or colleague I prefer to work with as I continue my journey to get licensed and to work with different firms. Like I can't, I really find it difficult to work productively with people who cannot or will not um, think uh, expansively. That's an interesting way of looking at coworkers and sort of the ideal workplace. Because I think whenever you were discussing the topic of, um, you know, sort of defining what an architect is and how it is all really about building relationships, whether it's people to people or people to space and, you know, whatnot, I think that is a great outlook for sort of how to apply that to your, you know, not only the job that you're doing, but the people that you're working with. Um, the big thing that I, that popped into my mind as you were talking was sort of, I'm watching this TV show right now on Disney plus called, uh, shop class. And it's all, it's all about, um, kids working with adults in different teams to basically build whatever the challenge says that they need to build. But their coaches throughout are some Imagineers and the entire thing that the Imagineers are trying to instill in them is how you look at an experience uh holistically right and you look at it from the moment that somebody walks up to it to understanding what the the story or the narrative is and then also having that sort of expansive mind that you were sort of talking about of you know are we looking at this from a new and different way or are we looking at it in the same vein as everybody else and really just going with the motions and doing the same thing over and over again so I think it's really interesting to sort of think about things in that expansive world. That's basically what I was trying to get at. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? You talked about Imagineers, and that immediately got me. See, connections. <laughs> it got me thinking about another aspect of this way of thinking that I think absolutely affects the way we talk with our colleagues and even our clients. Um, because Disney, for instance, and Disney World is one of the what is a really a clear example of this phenomenon um, that we <laughs> that exists in the world, which is um, that we as humans find things uh, certain things to have very cute proportions, and that brings us to them because we find them vulnerable, and that has to do with babies. So when we see a baby, we're like biologically inspired to take care of them because partly because and or at least there's some evidence to support this. Their heads are too big. Their eyes are too big. There's a strange proportion that we recognize, but they're too cute. <laughs> and it's a, this one of the reasons they say that people are actually drawn to them. And they've used this, for instance, at Disney World to create this sort of like, it's, I don't know if it was It's a Small World or a Main Street USA, where all of the buildings are slightly smaller than they should be, but the windows are really big. So there's this really strange connection between us being attracted to something that we find vulnerable. And maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but I I really think um, one of the ways in which I'm able to connect with people, especially clients, is to not try to be this like grown up person with a tie and like 
you know, crew cut hair, whatever. It's like actually being vulnerable and showing my youth and showing my vulnerability because people will, and this isn't manipulative, it's simply a way of connecting with people, right? You want to help someone who's vulnerable and you want to, you want to show your own vulnerability in return. If you come at somebody with like aggression, with like, like aggressive adulthood, let's call it, <laughs> without any kind of interest in who they are as a person, you're just, you think you're supposed to be doing the work in front of you. Um, I find that the person then reacts really, unfortunately, the same way back. But if you can kind of show a vulnerability, if you can open yourself up to play, be colorful, you know, and show your show them, basically show them your belly, right? Like they'll show you theirs. They'll, they'll trust you. And I think that's a great way to think about working with people in the world, especially if you have street relationships. We can't just keep trying to be these adults and like posture in front of each other. Like we have to use play and vulnerability and expansive thinking, um, I think, to relate to people. I think it's a really successful um, strategy, actually. I think aggressive adulthood needs to be a t-shirt. <laughs> and if I do it, I will give you royalties. Thank you. You're welcome. Great. <laughs> no, but there is a lot to be said about that aggressive adulthood. And um, I can absolutely relate to what you were saying about how you think connecting with clients in that sort of more vulnerable way where you show a playful side is absolutely true because, you know, I've had nothing but success, knock on wood, working with clients because I feel I have also offered them that sort of playful nature that you don't always get. Um, there was a quote that I read years ago that was something along the lines of, you can be childish while not acting like a child. So that's sort of like, how do you uh, draw some connections to people from like these baseline things that we all know? And it really comes down to, you know, being a fun, open person um, rather than being so closed off and putting on a persona that you feel that needs to be put in place based off of whatever role play that those individuals have played in their adult life. Absolutely. Jessie mentioned how she played a lot with neighborhood children. So I was interested in her work relationships now and how she works with somebody who may not be as playful as her. How I learned to play with others and like, you know, what do they say when you're a kid? Like you have to get, you have to play well with others. And I think, you know, we use this metaphor as adults too, but I think it's actually not just a matter. It's like exactly, it's exactly what we have to do. Um, we don't, we, to get along with someone, you really have to play well with them. And I think there's a, a lot to unpack in that, <laughs> that statement. Um, first of all, I think anyone on any kind of team they can't want, they have to be on the, they have to be playing the same game. Let's say that. I think one of the hardest things I've had in my past with bosses, one of the hardest things I've had to overcome is that I think that they were honestly playing a different game than me, right? So you all have to play by the same rules. There have to be clear expectations. Um, there have to be constraints involved. You can't just make up the rules halfway through so that you win and someone else doesn't. And you can't just decide in the middle of it that you're going to take your ball and go home, right? <laughs> like, these are really basic things we've all learned in our life. And if you want to have fun, you have to play the game and you have to play with others. So I think you have to agree on the goal. And I think as a, you know, that can be as broad as what is the goal of this company so that I can decide if I want to join you and help make this company successful. 
to a smaller, a really focused idea, like what is the goal of the task? What is the goal of today? You know, what is the goal at the end of the week? What is our bottom line? And it could be anything. It really could be profit driven. Maybe it's more creativity driven. Maybe it's more socially driven. It doesn't really matter. There has to be a clear goal because if there's not a clear goal, you don't know how to win the game. <laughs> if you have a clear goal and you can work together well with others to develop strategies to do that, then you're all gonna win. And this idea of like bonus or like promotion or this or that, to me, those are all kind of silly. I think those are dumb. It's like, if your person, if, you, if the person who's working for you or with you is helping to achieve that goal, then they're doing the right thing and they should be compensated, you know, and that could go into, we could go, we could go for days talking about equality at work, but in the, in the sense of how we get the job done, it's about being clear about what game we're playing. So that's a really important thing. And so I think in the past, um, I've had trouble with bosses for who, with whom I feel like we were playing completely different games. And it was very unclear to me because I felt, wow, they're in this great position to set up the game. And uh, like, I'm supposed to follow them and that's great. I'm totally into that. I wanna learn from them. And it seemed somehow that halfway through they, they took their ball and went home. <laughs> And then you get blamed for it, you know, because you're standing on the field and the client comes and they're like, hey, like, what happened to the picture? And you're like, well, I don't know. <laughs> um, and I would say I've had more trouble with bosses in that way than I have with colleagues. Although I think the same could be said, the same could be said for colleagues as well. Um, but definitely, yeah, being clear and understanding the constraints and limitations is the same as playing any game. Any game is you know, as simple as it might be. You're definitely not alone in that. I've been in many situations where I'm not sure what game we're playing, and that could be on a project level, that could be at a business level, um, and definitely <laughs> been in those point in those uh, situations where, um, you know, like you said, like the pitcher runs home with the ball, and you're left <laughs> there just sort of like, you know, you might be put in, you know, now you're the coach and you're just trying to make sense of whatever it is that you're trying to play. Um, it's it's really funny to think about it in retrospect, but it's also sad because there are so many people that can probably relate. Um, Absolutely. Like I had a boss <laughs> for a while who never came into the office, like led the whole company and was never there. And it was just one of those things of, <laughs> you know, they were the game was very much not defined and it was one of those things of we would all look at each other and just be like, okay, I guess we're, we develop what this game is. And of course, you know, they would come back in after a week or so of being gone and just be like, you know, no, this is not what we're playing. You need to get on the same page. And it's like, Oh boy, here we go again. Ugh. And there is a sort of flexibility. I think that being playful helps in those situations but unfortunately, you know, obviously, if it goes on for an extended period of time, it's some it's obviously a sign that, you know, you need to move on. But um, recognizing it and recognizing the diagnostics of it is, I think, really important. Definitely something I'm trying to get better at faster. at. <laughs> yeah, faster, faster with it. Yeah, I want to know day one. <laughs> There are two other sort of connections I think I could make about things I felt like I learned through play in my childhood and the kind of life or profession I live now. Live now. And one of them is card games. So I played all these other games, like in all these other different ways and all these other environments. Card games was really a family thing for me. 
um, my whole family was really into cards and even though there were only a few games we really played together and they were quite simple they were really important to me as a way to like get together with my family and they were often games that you could play if you got good enough at them you could play without really thinking and therefore you could do a lot of talking and it was one of the things i learned from that is that um if you get really good at the game if you're playing with other people who are good at the game as well it's not so much about winning anymore as much as it is about uh, enjoying the time together. Like game playing really becomes like an excuse for all the other things that happen while the game is being played. I think the best uh, example of that is that we love to play high speed, high stakes, and by high stakes, I just mean pride of winning, um, uh, multiplayer solitaire. And we are wicked fast at it. And mostly the women in my family play this. Um, but we're also good at it. We can make jokes and and talk and gossip while we're doing it. So it's a game which I love because you all have to participate and you all have to um, you all have to win for everyone to win. If that makes sense. Like yes, one person might go out first, but in the end, you you're all trying to win. And I it's just like a great like metaphor for game playing generally. And then the other um, thing that I think has was really important to me growing up, and I took a hiatus when I was like a, a young adult, but has come back into my life, is competitive swimming. And I don't know how you know loose the idea of game playing is or play is uh, as it connects to sports, but to me, sports were always such a, an important um, important part of my life, and swimming especially, I thought was interesting. Um, because there are so many metaphors in swimming that we use in our life. And every time I get really frustrated at work <laughs> and I try to, you know, in my mind, make up a, you know, an answer to my boss, I think about this, oh, throw you in the deep end. And in my mind, I'm like, you never learn how to swim if you get thrown in the deep end. <laughs> and I, I really think about how did I learn how to swim? How did I learn how to be not just a good swimmer, but a competitive swimmer? And it takes a lot of support from a lot of people and a lot of of actually like team effort and I think a lot of a lot about that because um, I started when I was like nine or ten and went through my teenage years and I think a lot about the lessons I learned from from swimming because even though it's like a really individual sport a lot of people may not really understand it in the same way as being a team sport the way you actually learn how to do it and how you become good at it is such an excellent lesson for life in general um, because it's you're putting yourself in a like a, a mode of being in a in a different element than we're typically ever in um, and it takes your entire body and the you really kind of learn through repetition um, but more importantly I, I always think of it because it's so often used as the metaphor throw someone in the deep end to learn and that's just not how anyone gets good at anything. <laughs> you don't get good at swimming. You might learn how to swim. You might learn how to survive, despite the fact that you didn't know how to swim first. But you're never going to learn how to do it well unless there's someone there to help you. And I'm really, really big into training people and to helping people understand expectations and goals. And it's really important that not only do you get pushed into big opportunities or difficult, challenging situations like the deep end, but that you also have someone that teaches you how. And any game that we play, any sport that we play, there are rules and constraints. And 
you definitely do need to be shown what they are. And even if you want to question them or challenge them or try to overcome them, you still have to be taught what the rules are in the first place. You can't be expected to know what they are before you do it. And I think it's a really important lesson that anyone can learn that everything we do is learned. And it's really important that we help each other to do that. We can't just, we can't throw someone in the deep end. That's like manslaughter. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's occupational manslaughter uh, specifically. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, you know what, everything you're saying about the being thrown in the deep end, I'm just shaking my head over here because, you know, you, you got to it towards the end where I was just thinking in my head, I'm like, you have an instructor, you know, you have somebody that sets those constraints for you. And anybody yeah. that like is looking for like well-balanced playing, like they need that. And that's the same thing as in the workplace. So everything you said makes a lot of sense. And I was thinking too, I was like, I had never thought about that. You know, if you get thrown in the deep end, you may survive, but it's not like you actually swim in the way that you should be. Right. Absolutely. That's great. Well, do you have any final recommendations for any of our listeners? Well, definitely what I just said, I think we should all remember that in the same way that we were children learning games, everything we do in our life is new and we should be unafraid to ask for help. And by that, if, if that's of any use to anyone, you should always be, it should always be okay, whether you're in work or in any other part of your life to ask yourself or those around you, hey, what's the game we're playing? What are the constraints? What are the limitations? Are there enough limitations? Is, are there enough constraints? Um, can we be innovative within those constraints and why? I think that asking yourself that in the same way you play a really simple game as a child um, can be really helpful in the workplace as well as you know, in other parts of life. Um, and definitely uh, expanding on what I said earlier about expansive thinking, I think that so much of our society is so focused on focused thinking and you know, cutting out all the extraneous things to get to the profit. But I think that's so detrimental to growth and it's also detrimental to, not just detrimental to growth and innovation, but detrimental to um, people being able to be comfortable in their own workplace and being able to put themselves in positions uh, that might actually help the bottom line. <laughs> as well. And I think it's really important that we like support people in being playful and intuitive and interested in, in thinking beyond, you know, what's in front of them. I think that's a really important uh, thing uh, for everyone to remember, especially if you're a manager, listen, manager, listen to what I'm saying. Um, but definitely as in games, uh, as a child, as an adult, if you're not laughing, you're probably doing something wrong. <laughs> a big thank you to Jessie for talking with us today. Between her love of expansive thinking and the introduction of the term aggressive adulthood, I surely got some great things that I can munch on for the weeks to come. That's our show for today. Make sure you tune in again and subscribe. For more information on how to infuse play into the workplace, visit our website at improv.agency.